You are listening to the Restoration LA podcast. For more, visit us at restorationla.org. Heavenly Father God, you are so big. You deserve every shout, every praise that we can give. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would position our hearts for what you have to speak to us. God, I know that this topic, this message hits me, and I know it can hit a lot of us as well. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be here to guide us through your truth this morning. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So, a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was seeing a play with my family, and um, in this play, there are there are four main characters. There was a father, a mother, and two daughters. And um, as this play is going on, basically what happened is that um, one of the, the older daughter was playing with the younger daughter and did something that the younger daughter didn't like. And the younger daughter goes up to the mother and she's crying about it. And um, she's like, you know, like, mom, my sister hurt my feelings. And the mom sits her down, she's crying, and says, you know, sometimes, sometimes, having a big sister is great. When you're good, when you're playing together, they make you feel big, they make you feel like a giant. But sometimes when you're playing and it doesn't go so well and your sister hurts you, she can make you feel really small. And the little sister looks up at her mom and says, how do you know so much about sisters? You don't have a sister. She says, well, sure I do. I have a sister. Don't you remember Auntie Brandy? Auntie Brandy? You haven't spoken to her in years. She's your sister? And the mom kind of looks down like, well, yeah, she's my sister. And stuff happens. Mom, did Auntie Brandy make you feel small? Yeah. Auntie Brandy made me feel small. And of course the play continues and, you know, it's a happy ending. The girls make up, they become good sisters again, good siblings. And at the end of the play, the mom sends them off to, you know, go play in the other room. And the lights start to fade. And then you see the mom take out her cell phone. Styles it, boop, 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 boop. Rings, rings. Hello? Brandy. Hey, it's your big sister. And the lights fade to black. In that moment in that theater, you could hear a pin drop. And you could kind of hear like a (laughs) And I will admit that I shed a few tears myself. Now, the title of this play was Bluey's Big Play. <laughs> um, the stage show. Yeah. Is that? No, that's not Bluey. Where's, where's, Bluey's, where's Bluey's theme song? <laughs> We're going to get it? Good. It's going to copyright it on our YouTube channel. Yeah. Okay. What, you want? There it is. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, you can fade that out. Um, so this was Bluey's big play, and um, and yeah, and, and since this was a live play, it looked more like this. 
Okay, so these are the characters that I was seeing of on, on, on stage. And, you know, I went to this play with my family thinking, it's, I, I love Bluey. Bluey is, like, by far the best children's television show out there right now um, because it, 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 it epitomizes and, and totally knows what it's like to be a parent. Um, and it just, yeah, it, like, I feel, I connect with it. Um, but I went to this play feeling like, like you know, I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to laugh with my kids. It's going to be great. But I was not ready for these feelings. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm crying here. My kids are like, okay, let's go get lunch. And I'm like, oh, oh wow, okay. And you know, the thing was like, we all kind of like this. Like, we like stories of reconciliation. We like people getting back together. We like that healing. It's in us. We smile. We smile at that. Because I think God's put that in our hearts, right? We like harmony. We like to see that repaired relationship. That's in us. That's part of who we're supposed to be. We're in our higher series. And we're talking about how God's ways are higher than ours. And today we're going to talk about his ways about relationship and conflict. Because we were made for connection with God and with others. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandments are to love the Lord God with your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandments have to do with relationship. First and foremost, your primary task in life is to love God. And next, our next task is to love others just as we love ourselves, which I think is kind of assumed we should be loving ourselves. But how to do that, how to love people when we are in conflict? How to love people when we are hurt? Now we might think, hey, this is the church, right? We should just get along because, yay, Jesus! But sadly, that is not always the case, right? We know this. But Jesus does want this for his church. He wants to see us united and one. Jesus prays this in John chapter 17, verse 20 through 21. He prays this about his disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, in case his disciples here and now with him, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word, so the future church, which includes us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants us to be one. Jesus is essentially imagining <coughs> heaven-type relationships now. The Father and Son, one. People and God, one. And people, also one. Jesus desires that we would all be one, united together under his love. Now, much has been made about uh, today about unity across theological, denominational, political lines, and rightfully so. I've had many conversations with people who believe a little bit different than me, who have different traditions, rituals, emphasis on their faith a little different than me, people who have voted different than me, and thank God that we can still find common ground and unity through Christ. That is amazing. That is awesome. But this unity also applies on a more local level, on the ground. The way that we interact, view each other, the way that we treat each other, especially when we are in conflict, is vital to Jesus. But sometimes we look at our relationships in the church and it doesn't really look like unity. And that is, of course, why Jesus commands us to forgive and reconcile. Paul says this in Colossians 3.13, Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Again, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
Now, if we take the underlying meaning of the Hebrew and Greek words translated as forgiveness, forgiveness is God's ongoing act of passing over, sending away, wiping away the guilt of our sins. Okay? That is the basis for why we forgive. So awesome, right? He did it for us. We should do it for each other. Got it. And yet, sometimes when we hear forgiveness, reconciliation, cross our arms, shake our heads, I think that is a tall order. Because you don't know and understand what whoever did. I can't just let them go. I can't just let them win. They don't get to get away with what they did to me. And I get it. I get it. I've been there many times too. My pain is not your pain. My experience is not your experience. But I have been made to feel small. I have been made to feel unwanted, feel ashamed, belittled, abused. I know what that's like. And some people in this room have had sins leveled against them so deep, so monumental, that that pain that you feel, one is absolutely real, and I'm just going to say this, I'm not supposed to say this, but I think the term fits, but it hurts like hell. Because hell is the ultimate lack of God's presence. And whatever has been done makes it feel like God is no longer in that space. Vanished. It can feel like that. It can feel like fire. When you are so upset, when you feel like your brain is just on fire, it can feel like that. Right? And that person who did it to you, that relationship has been banished and has broken and shattered. It can feel like hell. The pain, as much as you try to forget it, sometimes ekes back into your life, sometimes, and it hurts. And so when God says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive, the answer might be, no. I don't want to do that. And again, I get it. That is our normal human way of being. And then when we look at the further biblical prescription and instruction to forgive and deal with conflict, it honestly only gets harder. Because when you look at it, it, it's pretty tough. Let's look at a few more. Okay, unforgiveness can look like this. I love Paul's description here. He doesn't actually use forgiveness or unforgiveness, but I think this is what it looks like. He says in Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. That is a pretty tall order, Paul. That is pretty tough. Okay, Paul, okay. Paul was single, right? Okay, the Bible, he tells us in the Bible that Paul was single. How do I also know he was single? Because clearly he never had kids. Because there's this thing called piranha hour, which basically happens in the evening around 6, 6.30, when my parental energy is just about drained and the kids are, are also getting tired and cranky, and yet somehow they are acting up even more. They are not winding down, they are winding up. And this dinner that I so nicely prepared for them, they are now demanding snacks. And they are not going to take their bath, and they are certainly fighting bedtime, and now when I am dead tired, I am totally exhausted, they are running around finding energy from, I don't know, a demon, I assume, and they're just going crazy, and now I'm tired and impatient and I'm about to blow, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on my anger. Paul, the sun went down two hours, 39 minutes ago on my anger. It is far too late for that. Why don't you go to bed, Paul? 
Yeah. Don't make room for the devil. I'm pretty sure that I prepared the master bedroom for him and put a mint chocolate on his pillow. I'm about to serve that guy breakfast. That's what it feels like sometimes. Paul, come on. But Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And yet we have grudges that last months or years beyond. We have all known people like this. Maybe that's us. Or how about Jesus' instruction how to handle conflict? Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Okay? Please take note of this passage. This is the blueprint for how we should handle conflict in our church, really anywhere. Okay? But Jesus says this. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And of course, you know, to a Jewish audience, that would be like, okay, you got to remove them and basically don't deal with them anymore. You can sense, though, right in the beginning, Jesus' ultimate goal in the first instruction, regain your brother and sister. Forgiveness and reconciliation. But the first and best way to do it is just go talk one on one. Okay? You are allowed to bring it up. We are encouraged to bring it up. That is okay. But just one on one. Okay? Now, I think it's okay maybe to, you know, talk with a good, godly, uh, trusted friend for prayer and perspective. But who will point you back to Jesus? That's okay. But just handle it person to person. That is the primary biblical way to handle conflict. Now, Jesus concedes if they don't listen to you, then, okay, bring a couple people, probably trusted, wise confidants that both of you can agree on, and try to work it out. And if that doesn't work, then you can bring it up to the church because, you know, this person doesn't have a lot of compassion or empathy at this point. All right, maybe we need to reteach some things. And then finally, if that doesn't work, then you might say, all right, maybe we need to remove you from the body for now. Not as a punishment, per se, but because of that level of unrepentance can be dangerous. And the hope is that by letting them feel the sting of the lack of community, they will want to return and mend their ways. And of course, even then, we have to remember that Jesus loved Gentiles and had a tax collector on his team. So, you know, the goal is still forgiveness and reconciliation. But Jesus, I mean, can't I just run to all my friends and vent and get them on my side with my side of the story so we can all gang up on them and peer pressure them into, into reconciliation? Can't we do that? Can't I just tweet it out, let all my Instagram followers and Facebook friends know what a jerk this guy is? Just destroy him on social media? Can't we just do that? That's a little easier. That's more fun. Feels better. Or look, Jesus, I really like your last step. Just cut him out. Just kick him out of the church, right? Just get out. I don't want to deal with that. But you're asking me to forgive and reconcile. Huh. Peter responds to Jesus' teaching with the famous question, Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Or as some translations put it, 70 times seven times. To which Jesus then adds, that is why math is still important in real life. (laughs) 
says the Asian. Um, <laughs> and of course, Jesus is not saying, oh, it's up to 77 times, or, or it's up to 490 times, right? Like, oh, you're getting close. It's 75 times. Now you better watch yourself. Or, oh, no, no, 485. No, yeah, I mean, it's a lot. I gave you a lot of forgiveness, but I'm about to be fresh out of forgiveness. You have five more times, buddy. Okay, like if we were in the modern age, I would make an app for this. Okay, I'd make an app. Be like, all right, do you say, do you uh, theologically believe seventy seven or four hundred ninety? All right, you say seventy seven. All right, cool. So then, when someone offends you, you know, you have your whole contact list on there. You go, all right, you offended me. Boop, that's one. Okay, that's one. Okay, okay. All right, you know, years go by. Oh, you're up to ten. Boop. Sends you a little text message. You've sinned against them ten times. They've forgiven you ten times. You should be maybe careful. Then when it gets to 75, it like starts ringing like every hour. Like it wakes you up. Like here's all your notifications. Like you need to watch it because you're about to run out of forgiveness. Right? You're going to make millions on this. Now, Jesus, of course, doesn't mean that. Because the 77 or 490, okay, 7 is a holy number. And multiplied with 10 is also a holy number. 7 being, of course, the days of creation, 10 being the Ten Commandments, both representing completion and holiness. Jesus is basically saying, forgiveness is divine and holy. And the amount of times, therefore, is unlimited. Unlimited forgiveness. You're hurt? Forgive. You're hurt? Forgive. You're hurt? Forgive. Paul famously tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. But let me tell you, we've got records. We're making PowerPoint presentations over them and TikToks over them. That's what we're doing. Jesus, you're asking the impossible. Jesus, I'm hurting. I'm upset. I'm shamed. And you're asking me to just let it go and forgive them? No. No. And in our pain, it's far easier to obey my flesh, my emotions, my guilt, my shame, my anger, my pain. We'll summarize a few of them now. And these might be a little more of the extreme cases. But I think we all can connect with some, at some level with some of these things that we do. Okay? For many of us, getting sinned against leads us to shut down. The pain is so overwhelming. The thought of confronting it is daunting. And we live in fear of it and fear of that person. We just want to shut out everything and everyone. When my daughter Addie gets called out, um, when she gets criticized or you know, something happens she doesn't like, she will sort of try to disconnect. She doesn't want to feel what she's feeling. So what she does sometimes is she runs into her room and she'll run up to her, uh, her top bunk bed and she'll take her pillows and place them all around the edges as a little wall so she doesn't have to see us anymore. She's physically hiding from us, creating an actual physical barrier that mirrors her emotions. We do this sometimes, and we can end up getting trapped in our sadness, and it can spiral into cycles of depression and anxiety. We isolate ourselves. Or instead, of un un unforgiveness can lead us to maybe giving in to anger, tearing into people with our truth, letting it seethe. Okay, now talking about things again and processing what's happening underneath our emotions in healthy ways is very important. Okay, I believe in the golden rule. I believe that Jesus says, right, to treat others the way you want to be treated. If I'm hurt, I hope that I can bring it up to you. And so therefore, I have to say, if I've hurt you, then I hope you can bring it up to me. 
Okay, that is okay. We need to be able to do this. Okay, so if I have ever hurt you, I would ask you, please come up and tell me so we can make it right. Don't do it now. Okay, wait till after service. Okay, uh, you know, I, I'll have a line out there if you, if you need. Um, you know, and, and look, if I haven't offended you yet, don't worry, I got another 45 minutes. We'll see. Um, it's not that funny, it's okay. <laughs> Outright reaction because of anger is so easy to fall into. Because it almost feels good and cathartic. You just, this is adrenaline rush. Just release the tension. Just spew out your truth in righteous indignation. It's why both major political parties, their affiliated news outlets, their social media, their podcasters, have all become experts in channeling and weaponizing people's rage. There, I've offended someone probably, right? You hurt me, you offended me, you made me feel small. Well, see my dragon roar. Look how powerful I am. Feel the fury. Feel how I pierce you with my words and quite possibly my fist. We've seen that, right? It's a power trip. Watch as my foe shirks and shrinks at the sheer power of my fury. And okay, maybe not, maybe not full on fury. No, I don't do that. No, maybe I'll just, you know, throw a little passive aggressive dart at my so-called loved one. Hmm? We can do that. Well, let's go the opposite, right? Let's give them some silent treatment. Okay, now we aren't talking again about taking some time to think and process and pray. That is good. But no. I'm just going to shut them out. No. I'm not going to talk to you. Right? Some of us have done this. Some of us experienced this. They want to talk to me? No. Uh-uh. They don't get to do that. I'm keeping my space. But staying in silence can often be the epitome of making room for the devil. Because we brood and stew on the offense, letting it fester and bubble. All the while our minds play with Satan in the isolation, tacking on offenses, putting together scenarios of why this person did it to me. Revenge fantasies, letting our anger take root like a disease that slowly grows. And we really need to be honest with what we're doing. We are actually seeking to punish the offender by withholding relationship. You made me feel powerless with your words or your actions, so I will be powerful by withholding mine. We are seeking to instill fear in the other person by manipulating their emotions. It is carrying out punishment on them using broken relationship. We try to control. And then everyone has to tiptoe around us, right? They have to, oh, I can't, I can't go near that person. Uh-uh. I don't want to wake the dragon. I don't want to do that. Right? The phrase goes what? <coughs> Tiptoeing on eggshells, right? People, we are in an egg shortage. <laughs> we cannot afford to have all these broken eggshells. I'm pretty sure that's why your omelets cost $17 right now. <laughs> because we have so many grudges and unforgiveness. We're carrying this all about. Okay? And, and, you know, it, it feels okay because they're not talking to me. They're not hurting me, right? They know their place because now they're living in fear, right? I have a relative peace, right? But the actual peace that we're looking for, restored good relationship, the possibility of that starts to fade as both parties settle into a relationship now defined by fear and control. Or, you know what, let's just cut them off. Let's just, let's just cancel them, right? But cancel culture is not the gospel. Now, before you think that, like, oh, this is a political thing, okay? Cancel culture is not just from one side of the political coin. We need to be honest that canceling has come from all sides of culture, 
okay? Including many Christians. This has happened many times over the years. It just has a fancy name now. And I'm not trying to excuse or defend some of the high-profile crimes or statements or hate of people who've been canceled in a public way. Some of that stuff has, it's, it's awful. It's awful. God is a God of second chances, yes, and forgiveness, yes, but he is also a God of righteousness, justice, and accountability. I'm not trying to impose any spiritual gaslighting. And yes, we must acknowledge that sometimes there are times when cutting off ties is allowable or even wise, cases of abuse or any kind of threat of physical violence, danger. That is understandable. But if cutting off people is our first instinct, then we have made room for the devil whose desire it is to kill, steal, and destroy our relationships. And he just did that. And we just let him. Cutting off can create immediate emotional relief, partially out of retribution and partially because we feel like, all right, we're just booting it out of our life. But Dr. Kimberly Rios Lamb, who is <laughs> Sam's wife and goes here, okay? She knows her stuff. Um, Kim says, cutting off actually increases the amount of triggers to unresolved issues. And the longer you wait to address them, the more powerful they can potentially become. Some people are able to suppress them for a while, but eventually they come back up. Focusing and dwelling on being defined by our pain leads to unforgiveness, and that leads to destructive reactions and patterns. I'm not saying that the pain is not real. At the core of most conflicts, you were made to feel unloved, made to feel small, insignificant, unheard, dismissed, irrelevant, maybe made to feel stupid, rejected, incompetent. It fundamentally disrupts the trust and safety that you had in that relationship that you thought you had before. But almost to a fault, we feel compelled to react to those things in unhealthy ways. My insecurity of being a failure causes me to lash out when I am critiqued by another. Because I feel unloved by my family of origin because they were overly harsh, I play out that trauma and isolate from others when they make me feel unloved. Because I feel rejected, I cut off others so I don't have to feel rejection again. When others give me pain, I have to give them the pain right back. We follow sin against us with sin against them and sin against God. It's just a continual cycle. Unlike Jesus, we hold people in a continual state of punishment, retribution, control, manipulation, none of which reflect God's love, and we imprison ourselves in a cycle of generational curses, estrangements, and rifts. We lock the other person up, but we also end up locking ourselves up in a hell of our own making. Unforgiveness, it is said, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It eats away. And we let that offense devour our hearts and slowly establish more and more and more of a foothold in our lives. We have made room for the devil. Some of us have learned this from our parents. Some of us have seen it on TV, maybe social media. We even see it in the church. There are ways. There are human ways. Our need to self-preserve, our need to nurse our wounds to control because we felt out of control our need to self-medicate because we're hurt, our need to hurt others to make them feel the same pain that we are feeling. So now we've wrapped ourselves up in this web of unforgiveness compounded by our own reactional sins, and our mind is trapped in the, I can't believe they would do this to me. Why, God, why? They don't deserve my forgiveness. And we keep the disunity going. 
we have gotten so good at not forgiving, at not being able to reconcile. That once close relationship seems like a distant fading memory. Maybe they even live in the same house as you. But where there was once warmth and intimacy, now they're just rocks and emptiness. It doesn't look much like the kingdom. Probably not what God intended for his people. It sure doesn't look like the unity that Jesus wants. Kind of looks probably like hell. Jesus tells us, Matthew 18, 23 through 35, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began reckoning, when we began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents is like a year's wage. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payments to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, small sum. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went down and threw him into prison until he would pay, pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what was happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would, be pay, he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Oh, great, Jesus. Now you're just going to guilt me and condemn me? Now if I don't forgive? And I think we see the main point of this passage, right? It's pretty obvious, right? God has forgiven us everything. Everything. Sometimes, though, we do not forgive the small things. And to do that is honestly to throw the forgiveness back in Jesus' face. It's pretty disrespectful. But does this parable mean that we lose our salvation if we don't forgive someone? Now, at the risk of using an extreme example to highlight the, the, the fallacy of that, you know, I'll put it this way. I, I can't believe that if Kathy wronged me and offended me, which I know is hard to believe, um, okay, but if she did that, and then I stormed out of the room in unforgiveness, and I walked down the street and got hit by a car and died before I forgave her, then I would go straight to hell? doesn't sound like God's character, right? Salvation and forgiveness, this gets a little theologically technical, but salvation and forgiveness go hand in hand, but they're not one and the same, okay? We are justified and saved through faith and God's atoning sacrifice. I don't believe that can be lost. That cannot be lost. So you can breathe a sigh of relief, but Pastor Michael Eaton writes this, Forgiveness is the experience we have when God tells us he has nothing against us. It's the experience we have when, tells, when God tells us he has nothing against us. So if we don't forgive, we won't be experiencing and living Jesus' forgiveness as well. We won't be living in the way that Jesus intended for us. His presence, the full blessing, the freedom from our own sins in a day-to-day -day way, the joy that Jesus brings to us, that will likely be forfeit and diminished.
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. But in our unforgiveness, are we blocking the life that God wants for us? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Because if we are quenching the Spirit, we're not making room for God. And who's going to take up room in there? Satan. Unforgiveness grows like that. If we live in unforgiveness like that servant in Jesus' parable, we'll be stuck in a prison, trapped in a vicious cycle. Living in unforgiveness does not reflect God's kingdom reality. God, in his forgiveness of us, could justifiably look at each one of our sins and condemn us. He has every right. He is God. But he doesn't. He does not dwell on our sin. He does not dwell on our sin. We are asked to do the same. Forgiveness for us means to not hold the sin against the other and reconcile and not dwell on their sin or that person any longer. But sometimes we don't just dwell on it. We live in it. That's become our home. We've got a home loan and refinance it and we redid the kitchen on that thing. We live in it. And in this state, we have a tough time letting Jesus' forgiveness in. The joy of your salvation will fade. Experiencing his love will be diminished. And your ability to love others will degrade. Again, I'm not saying that the pain of sin against you isn't real. We aren't saying that your feelings and emotions, because of those, aren't valid. They absolutely are. But when we fixate on those things and live in unforgiveness, we trap ourselves and the other person in a new reality of continual pain, anger, sadness, and disunity, not the freedom that God gave us. They become our masters, our jailers, and we often let them dictate our actions. Sin against us turns, again, turns into sin against them and sins against God. Our reality is now defined by our offense and by our enemy. God's forgiveness of us is no longer our reality. Maybe it never was. Maybe we really never knew it at all. But our souls long for that. We long to be set free. And I found myself here. I've carried the sin of disunity and unforgiveness. I've carried many other sins before too. I have found myself sometimes to be joyless, stuck, relationally separated, trapping myself under my covers, unable to get myself out of bed. I know what that's like. You start thinking, how could God forgive me of this? Does God even see the pain that I feel? Will I ever be free? I hear it all the time. How can God love someone so broken as me? And then I'm always brought back, always brought back to one of my favorite passages, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we all want to get to God. We all want to come back to God. We all want to feel that forgiveness. We all want to feel his presence again. But we're afraid. We are afraid because we are carrying this heavy burden. We are carrying these sins. We are carrying these, these, thins, these things done against us. They weigh us down. We 
think, God won't want these. God's going to reject me. God's going to condemn me. But no. Jesus tells us, I know what that's like. I know what you're feeling. So you can come to my throne in boldness. I understand. And so we start to walk up. And then I love this scripture, Psalm 34:18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So Jesus actually gets up from his throne. He's still king, of course, but he gets up from his throne and he comes down to us. Jesus is the Emmanuel, God with us. He came down to us. He comes to us. Men in Matthew 18, 11 through 28 through 29, come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, you don't have to carry that. I don't want to give it to you. No, it's okay. You don't have to carry that. Give it here. This one? It's forgiven. That one? Clean. This one? Healed. The atmosphere begins to clear. The haze, the fog of fear and discouragement lifts. As we take those burdens those sins against us, the insecurities, the guilt that we hold, the false identities. We hold them up to Jesus, still half afraid he might condemn us, might send us away. There's no. Forgiven. Healed. Washed clean. I set you free. He showers us with his love. And that burden is lifted till we can say, okay, God. Okay. You win. Your love is greater. I can surrender these things to you so that you can start to heal me. Now that overall healing may still take time. I cannot promise you that those feelings are immediately going to go away. I can't promise you that that pain immediately fully disappears. Some hurts are vast and deep and God is going to take us on a journey with soul work and deep conversations and prayer. That may have to happen. But His forgiveness and His love wash it away starts to truly open us up to start that healing process. And so the chains around our hearts sort of crack, 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 shatter. When we truly let Jesus' love forgive us and cleanse us. It's not just the sins that we've done that are washed clean. It is those mindsets. It is those false identities. Those narratives. The lies that we've told ourselves, the lies have been told to us the weight of undue expectations, the pains, the traumas, the criticisms, the failures, the embarrassments, all are washed clean. Colossians 1, 19-20, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of His cross. Jesus' forgiveness opens us up to true healing and the hurts and the sins done against us and by us and all their effects, all those things that have kept us locked up, those are broken. Their power is broken. And it frees us to react differently when, con when conflict comes up. So when offenses or past traumas whisper to us, you're a reject, 
Jesus shoots back, no, you are mine. I cherish you. When Satan screams through someone else's sin against you, you are alone. Jesus' glory declares, you are with me. You are my son. You are my daughter. You belong in my family. When someone disagrees with us, insults us, criticizes us, and we think, I am unloved, I am unworthy, I am a failure, the voice of God declares, I loved you enough to die for you on that cross and resurrect for you. You are worthy of being loved, and you are my creation. That is who you are. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ sweeps away the doubts and insecurities that cause our relational rifts and replaces it with a firm foundation of God's peace and love. Having that revelation of God's washing of us first opens us up to true healing and wholeness in Christ. Have you truly experienced God's love and forgiveness? It is a different reality. It is a different way of being. It is a different way of thinking. Jesus' love, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his kindness heals our souls. Let God's love transform your heart. Jesus tells us, you don't have to live like that anymore. I never wanted for that for you in the first place. You can escape that trap. I forgave you and I freed you. You can be free. It is for freedom's sake that we have been set free. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, you've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And in being a new creation, we get renewed minds, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, a renewed soul to see and experience this forgiveness. You know, sometimes we think that God's forgiveness is just a, a one-time act, right? It happened way back then, right? And that kind of makes it easy to forget, right? Jesus died, he resurrected, he forgives me, but that was 2,000 years ago. Cool, thanks, I got it, okay? But now we just kind of forget about it. But what we really need to understand is that God's forgiveness is a continual act of forgiveness that stretches through time and reality. We need to experience his forgiveness each and every day. Every day. God's forgiveness is his full character, his full loving character that forgives our sins throughout our entire lives. This is the forgive seven times 70 reality. All of it. You've got to identify this and experience this for yourself. God's grace and forgiveness is new each day, and it looks different for me than what it looks like for you. What you have had forgiven is different than what I have had forgiven. In your life, where is God's forgiveness real? Which sin breaks your heart utterly, but that his forgiveness renews your soul? Can you fathom the magnitude of God's love and forgiveness for stretching through your entire existence? Are you captured by his love for you? Can you reflect where God's forgiveness is actually real in your life? Does it set you free and make you shout like Ken did this morning? Praise to the Lord. Have you experienced that? Do you know what that's like? That's God's forgiveness. God says, I am healing you day by day, continually washing you clean.
continually making you whole. All those offenses against you are forgiven. Not necessarily because you did wrong. Maybe you did. You know, sometimes we all have a part to play, right? Or maybe you reacted against them. Maybe. But I am sending all those away, and I declare that you can choose to send them away each day yourself as well. You can see yourself as clean too. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's love and forgiveness is not just a static one-time thing. It is the firm foundation, the steady anchor, the reality in which we live. For believers, God's forgiveness is the ongoing experience of being loved and forgiven by God. This is a different mindset that cleanses of our sin, our pain, our hurt, our offenses, our mindsets. And it does one more vital thing. First John 3, 1. See what, the love, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We have become children of God. God welcomes us back into his family. Reconciliation. We are part of God's family now. As Western Americans, we tend to think of, we tend to highlight God's forgiveness primarily as avoiding the punishment of hell. Okay, and that's partially right, of course. Okay, but we become so focused on that sometimes that we lose sight of God's ultimate goal, which was reconciliation. Reconciliation of our relationship with Him. So, because beyond the fire and brimstone imagery of hell is ultimately the absence of God's presence. Our sin keeps us from relationship with God, and hell is the ultimate culmination of that, an eternity out of relationship with God. Heaven is the opposite. Beyond the streets of gold and mansions imagery, we have the absolute and perpetual presence of God, the ultimate culmination of relationship with God. So in being forgiven, we don't just escape hell and get a ticket to heaven. We get restored relationship with Jesus. Forgiveness is the relational reality that we now live with God, which allows us to be welcomed back back into God's family in reconciliation. And God's family acts differently. Ephesians 4, 31 through chapter 5, verse 1. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says to live in love, live in Christ's love. It starts with him and it pours out to everyone else. We don't dwell on the offenses, but we live in God's love, saturated by it, refreshed by it, encouraged by it, empowered by it. Empowered by God's love so that we not only can put away the bitterness and the anger and the wrath, but then we overflow with tenderheartedness, kindness, and forgiveness to one another. Colossians 3, 14-15, above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Whereas before our insecurities, the sins done to us, the damage, the hurts, the pain, defined us and rule our actions, now we are under Christ. Grateful to be made whole. 
made clean, bound together to God by the blood of Jesus. But not just bound to Jesus, but now bound to each other as well. So that one, that one person, that hurty, he's my brother. She's my sister. We're all part of God's family. Lewis Smead says, forgiveness performs surgery inside your soul. You cut away the wrong that was done to you so that you can see your enemy through the eyes that can heal your soul. And the first gift you get is new insight. We learn deeper truth about them. Truth that our hatred before blinded us to. Because that person who hurt you, that person who hurt me, they have their traumas and hurts too. That might have entrapped them to sin against us. But we all have the same Jesus. We all fall short of God's standard, but we all have been forgiven by the same love. And we've all been reconciled to the same family. Okay? Now, before you think that now it's okay to then be a jerk to non-believers because they're not in the family of God yet, okay? No, okay? Just because they haven't experienced God's love yet doesn't mean they don't have the potential to experience God's love yet. Forgiveness kind of seems like a pretty good way to do that, okay? So don't be a jerk to non-believers, okay? Christ sees me as forgiven, clean, and freed. I choose, therefore, to see my brother or sister as forgiven, clean, and freed as well. Lewis Smedes writes, Our new insight then leads us to new feelings. In living forgiveness, what you did to me becomes irrelevant to the way I feel about you. For many of us then, we refine that love for one another that was lost. And I'd like to think it was there all the time. We've been searching for it. Christ doesn't leave me in a state of anger or wrath for my sin, so I will not hold you in one either. We see our offenders not as enemies, but as part of the one God's family. Being part of God's family, just as he envisioned. Jesus bestows on me the reality of forgiveness and love, so I will live that lifestyle of forgiveness so that you can live in that same reality. I am forgiven to forgive. I am set free to set you free. Forgiveness is a way of living. It is a complete paradigm. Forgiveness is a lifelong process. Yes, of course, it starts with a decision, okay? Sometimes even before the other person repents. Sometimes you have to do it first. When Jesus forgave us, he, you know, when he, before he went to the cross, he didn't say, well, you got to fix yourself before I go to the cross. Oh, well, he never would have gone, right? Never would have happened. Isn't it amazing that God's forgiveness, he takes the first step? It's crazy. Jesus goes to the cross into prophetic hope that people would believe and repent. That's crazy. Like Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Don't make room. Make room for Jesus instead. I love that Paul says, essentially, it's okay to be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. It's okay. Paul understood, even way back then, before we understood it now, that emotions are okay. He experienced them. Jesus experienced them. Right? They're part of our human experience. It's okay. But don't let them rule you. Don't let Satan into that space. Set the forgiveness in motion quickly. Let Jesus in that space first. Forgive quickly. It's okay to take a little time to think and recover and process. Okay? And again, when Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, okay, if, it's, if it's already nighttime, okay, like... Right? It's okay sometimes that it's already night. It's fine. And if you're like arguing with your spouse late, late in the morning, like 2 a.m. in the morning, and you're like not coherent anymore, it's okay to get sleep. I don't think I'm going against the Bible by saying it's okay to get some sleep so that you can actually discuss it better. Okay? 
but make the point. Say, I'm hurting still, but I forgive you. We haven't quite hammered this out yet, but I forgive you. Tomorrow, the first chance we get, we're going to reconcile. We're going to figure this out. That's what it looks like. We may not have all our feelings processed, might not have come to an understanding, but forgiveness is the kingdom reality. So prophetically, I'm going to forgive you now. Because that's who Jesus made me to be. So I want to give that to you. Does this mean that I will never feel anger again or sadness or pain again, even for the same offense? No, of course not. I hear people say sometimes that after they've forgiven someone, that you know, suddenly their ill will will come up again. You know, they'll suddenly feel anger again when they think about it or when the hurt comes back up. And then they conclude, well, I guess I never forgave them in the first place. Oh. Then there's a sort of guilt and feeling of failure that, oh, I guess I didn't do it right. I didn't have enough faith. But look, that's just not realistic. We can't just erase the wrong thing from our memories. Okay, forgive and forget, that's a lie. You can't do it. You just can't, right? That's not the way it works. Sometimes those emotions are going to flare back up because that thing happened that was real. Okay, that's okay. It's not realistic to think that way. The emotions associated with that thing and soul, uh, the emotions associated with that thing will take time to heal. It takes some soul work. Healing is sometimes a lifelong process. Things will still hurt. Pain doesn't automatically go away. It doesn't fix itself overnight. Trauma, pain, triggers. There's often layers of hurt that have to be undone and understood. And God knows that. And God is like, you're not ready to face that thing yet. We've got to unpeel this thing slowly. Okay? I'll get you ready for that. I'm going to mature you to the point where you're ready for this thing. When we choose to be under Jesus, sometimes we have to choose a lifelong process of healing. And God will sometimes utilize therapy, pastoral counseling, wise and encouraging church relationships as conduits and facilitators to help us through healing. That's okay. That's a good thing. That's why we have the church. So when a twinge of anger or resentment comes up, as it naturally may will, we do not need to feel guilty or like we failed to forgive. But we don't dwell on it. Again, we don't let it take root. We don't make room for the devil. My actions will be to not guilt you or punish you, whether in rage or silence or manipulation. I'm going to take that feeling captive. Give it to Christ, who reminds me that I'm forgiven and that you are forgiven. We are forgiven, and we will continue to forgive. This is that same 7 times 70 mentality. Forgiveness forever. Forgiveness continually. This is how we in the church, in the kingdom, should handle hurt and conflict. Not only because it mimics, uh, mimics Jesus in the kingdom, but it honors God, and it also creates the best environment for God's ultimate heart of unity, reconciliation. Because if that offender is living in fear of you, approaching you is going to be an overwhelming task. But if you live a lifestyle of continual forgiveness, it creates that safe space for that offender to come to you and apologize and make it right. We have the opportunity to do that for people that offend us. We have the opportunity to start reconciliation. Now, of course, the offender can do it first, right? If the offender is brave enough, okay, Matthew 18 says that we, if we have, some, um, if we have something against someone, we got to go make it right. 
And Matthew 5, remember Jody brought this up, says, if you remember that someone has something against you, you go make it right and do it quickly. Okay, so it can work both ways, right? If you accidentally tripped someone and broke their leg, I would hope that you would stop and apologize profusely and call 911. <laughs> Why don't we do that for emotions? Why do we just run away? Why? Right? You have the opportunity to do it too. Living the kingdom lifestyle creates a safety net where we can find the same relational restoration and healing that we found Jesus. So just as the hurt person can create a safety net for the offender through forgiveness, the offender can help the offended feel safe through a repentant and understanding heart. Because reconciliation does not mean no accountability, no responsibility, or perhaps sometimes even consequences in the real world. It doesn't mean that sometimes boundaries and trust levels need to be readjusted. Hopefully with the eventual goal of full restoration, sure. We don't just sweep things under the rug in reconciliation. It's not just, yay, we're good now, kumbaya. It's not that. Reconciliation should come with repentance and understanding, which can often lead to deeper relationship. Because now you know me. You know a little more about me. It takes humility, a listening ear, emotional availability, and compassion to see how your actions cause pain. Ugh, it's not nice to look at. But you love that person by doing that. Just as the person set you free, you have the chance to set them free. Maybe you hit a wound in their past. You have a chance to help them heal. Because now you can help them feel seen and heard, which goes a long way towards healing. Hey, now again, don't, don't just go out and hurt people so that you can heal their wounds. <laughs> don't just go out and offend people like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're offended now. He's broken. No, let me give you Jesus. Hey, don't, don't do that. It's not nice. Okay. Kingdom reconciliation, though, ultimately requires gaining understanding and growing together. When the offender has the freedom to ask, how did my actions hurt you? The offended can openly say, I felt unappreciated. I felt blamed. I felt unwanted when you did whatever. And the offender can acknowledge, I can see that. Maybe I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to hurt you. But I can see how I did. And I apologize for that. We have to take responsibility even if we didn't mean to do it. That's important. Teach me how to love you better. How can we love each other better in this? That grows relationship. That grows the kingdom. Jesus desires this for us. And, you know, that the conversation I just kind of laid out has a whole host of, like, strategies, like I statements and, and um, emotional intelligence and seeing the best in others. And we can talk days for that. Okay? Maybe, maybe we should have a workshop on that. I think we should. Um, workshop on strategies about um, conflict resolution. Popular psychology today says forgiveness is primarily for the one who is hurt to free oneself from the feelings of revenge and anger. And of course that's true, right? We, that is true. But kingdom forgiveness is not just for me. It's for us. Kingdom forgiveness is for God, for me, and the other. Just like the commandments say, to love God, to love others, and love myself. For God, as we worship and celebrate Him in obedience, when we imitate Him in forgiveness, and serve Him by reflecting our love to others. For us, yes, we are set free. To the Christian, though, is declaring that we are free in Christ and making the resurrection forgiveness a reality. And for the other, we declare in forgiveness that they are free as well and also have the chance to repent, grow, and reconcile. Kingdom forgiveness shows love not just to me, but us. 
It prioritizes relationship. You've been set free. So let's set each other free. Just imagine, church, if we were to actually forgive and reconcile with one another to deeper understanding, to deeper relationship, what would that look like? A chain reaction of forgiveness, or maybe a breaking chains reaction of relationship. That would reflect Jesus' love to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we've all been hurt. We all have pains. But so do you. We have grieved your heart in our sin. We have grieved your heart. And yet, God, in your great love, you forgive us. God, I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to the truth of that forgiveness, to the truth of your love, that we would experience it anew right now and each and every day that your love and forgiveness would become our reality, our experience. And God, as we think of those who have hurt us, as we think of those who have wronged us, I pray, Lord, for new eyes, new eyes to see this person, those people. You love them, and you've called us to love them too. And so, God, break our hearts. Break our hearts for the way that we've been carrying that unforgiveness. We've been carrying that hurt in our back pocket. That we've kept it hidden away in our souls, festering, growing into something that you never wanted for us. Help us to let go. Those, that's your way. Help us to love one another. Help us to be reconciled to each other. Friends, if you are dealing with unforgiveness, if you have something in your heart against someone, you know you're holding on to it. You know it's hard to let go. Again, it's understandable. But God is calling you to today. Forgive. Forgive. It is not an easy process all the time. But if that's you, if God is tugging on your heartstrings, I think He wants us to respond. It is a tough thing. It is absolutely tough to let go of those things because they are real. But God has forgiven you. If you need to let go this morning, if you need to be empowered by his love, I just ask that you raise your hand. No one else is looking. No one else is looking. It's okay to respond. It's okay to say, yeah, I've, I've got this, but I want to be free of it. If you're raising your hand, the Lord declares on you, you are free. He sees you as free. You do not have to live in that space anymore. You are cleansed, you are forgiven, and you are loved.
that thing does not have to define you. Let the blood of Jesus wash over you. Let his love surround you. Let it bring you a new reality, a new way of being. The challenge is, of course, now to go live it, to go and live it. But God declares over you that you have that in you. You have what it takes because you have him. You have his forgiveness already in your life. You can extend that forgiveness to that person too. So God, I pray over every person in this room, and especially those who raise their hands, especially those who responded to your call, strengthen them. Strengthen us. Strengthen all of us to live out that forgiveness. Break our heart for what breaks yours. God, may we see that unity restored in your church, in our families, in our friends. God, thank you for giving us a new way of being. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Give the Lord some praise. It's not easy. If you are still in that place, if you need to talk to somebody about this, please come up. Please come and talk to one of the leaders. We would absolutely love to start walking you through a process of reconciliation or forgiveness. It needs to happen. God's ways are higher. I'm not sure how to end this. <laughs> but yeah, if that's you, please come up for prayer. Enjoy your week. Enjoy each other. Maybe go we'll have a tough conversation. I don't know. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.